Well, good afternoon. It's so nice to have all of you with us today. Thank you for joining us. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor here, and uh, it's just a privilege to have you guys with us. How are you guys feeling this afternoon? I've been tired all week because of daylight savings time. See some tired eyes out there. But I'm sure that uh, we've all enjoyed the extra sunshine that's come as a result. Can I get just a quick show of hands? Who here actually likes daylight savings time? All right, looks like it's about 50-50. I think if you have children or pets or employees, daylight savings time is probably more of a burden than it is a blessing. Daylight savings time was invented by a man from New Zealand over 100 years ago. And the idea or the rationale for changing the clocks forward an hour is that it give farmers an extra hour or so every day of productivity outside. It's a good idea, but of course, What they didn't anticipate then was that there'd be a lot of complications that would come from just moving the clocks forward for an hour. I think the reason why everybody who likes daylight savings time likes it is because it's it's a reasonable name, right? Daylight savings time. Who wouldn't want to save a little bit of extra daylight? But um, I'm not a fan because I have four children. (laughs) It's been a rough week with all the adjustments to our schedules that have come from that. So I came up with uh, seven or eight replacement names for daylight savings time that I think are a little bit more accurate. And if you are a daylight savings time hater like I am, you can take one of these names and just help me start replacing daylight savings time. I think one good replacement for daylight savings time would be late to church Sunday. We just start calling it late to church Sunday. That, of course, is a little bit mitigated here because we meet in the afternoon. But if we were supposed to meet here at 8 this morning last week, we probably would have had a few show up late, my family included. I think probably a more accurate name than daylight savings time would be daylight yawning time. Have you guys been yawning all week? I think I've been doing it more than normal. This one's a little long, but it's got potential. How about instead of daylight savings time, we call it blame your iPhone for being late to work Monday. Right? It's, oh, you know, I'm sorry, boss. I set my phone back an hour, but then the phone did it for me, and that's why I'm two hours late. Sorry. Right? How about this? The week of cursing out the guy who designed your car dashboard clock. And you guys driving down the road trying to correct that time? This is probably my favorite one. Instead of daylight savings times, we could call it time travel into the not distant future where everybody is crabby. I think that's better. Or how about this? Uh, Definitely my experience. We could just call it the worst week of the year for parents of toddlers. (laughs) So despite all these complications, uh, I'm certain that on some level, everybody here has enjoyed the extra sunlight that we've experienced in the last couple of days. I've been doing extra cleaning. I've taken my kids to the park. There's just so many benefits to the extra exposure to light. Each Sunday this spring, we're looking at one of the seven I am statements in the book of John where Jesus declared that he was like something, where he taught us some profound lesson. And today we turn to the declaration where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Just a coincidence that that happens to be the week of daylight savings time, but what a, what a good coincidence, right? To be reminded of this extra thing that's so good for us. And even though they didn't celebrate daylight savings time back in the Bible, they were celebrating an equally obscure and relevant holiday during the time that Jesus made this declaration. So I'd like to just spend the next 15 or 20 minutes investigating what Jesus wants us to know 
and what Jesus wants us to do as a result of this intriguing statement that he is the light of the world. Uh, I hope you guys got a bulletin when you came in. If you got one of these, uh, there's just an outline inside of it. And let's very quickly just talk about this teaching by Jesus that he is the light of the world. Let's talk about it in two parts. In section one, let's talk about the context and the details that are surrounding this teaching that he gave because it's going to help us understand it with much greater application and depth. And then in section two, let's talk about the so what. What is Jesus asking or inviting of us when he says, I am the light of the world? Well, I believe that uh, the Bible is the primary way that Jesus talks to us as modern people. There's, you know, you might hear a great line from a song. You might have a wise friend who speaks timely wisdom into your life. But I believe as we read the recorded miracles and teachings of Jesus and the, the things that God has done in the Bible, that's the safest and the most primary way that we can know that God is speaking something into our life. But, of course, the deeper we read in and the more we understand what these stories would have meant to the original audience, the more, as a result, the deeper we can understand what God wants to to communicate to us as moderns as well. I'd like to just share four things, four kind of things that you might not catch on your initial reading of uh, John chapter 8 that are going to help us understand what Jesus wants not only the original audience to know, that crowd that was gathered around him, but also what Jesus wants us to know as a result of this statement that he is the light of the world. All right, the first thing is this. There's a holiday going on here in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. It goes by a couple different names in the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Festival of the Booths. Sometimes it's called the Feasts of the Tabernacle. Sometimes, I guess in the Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And it's basically like camping, okay? In a lot of ways, it has to do with camping. I just, I'm hoping we can have one or two brave individuals here with us right now that can tell us what their favorite thing is about camping. Because I know that 90% of the people that live in this community love to go out on weekends in the summertime and do some camping. Oliver, what do you love about camping? S'mores. S'mores. Absolutely. Any other things that you guys love about camping? What is it that compels us to go out into the wilderness and leave all the modern conveniences of our homes? Quiet. Quiet. Okay, absolutely. We could go on and on with some of the things that we love about camping. I think probably one thing that all of our answers would probably have in common is when we leave the modern world and we get out in nature, there's just a part of us, how humans lived for centuries, that's kind of rekindled. Like there's this primal part of us that's out in nature and and, and it's peaceful and it's beautiful and it reminds us of a part of ourselves that we don't always access in the modern world. In the same way, this Jewish holiday, the Feasts of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths, it was kind of like Jewish camping. And what they would do is they would all set up these booths, these really flimsy tents, and they would sleep in these tents for a whole week, and it would remind them of their history. It would remind them of before they were Israelites, before they lived in the Promised Land, when they were just these ragtag travelers in the wilderness that God took care of every day. Do you guys remember the story after the Exodus and before Joshua when the Israelites were just kind of wilderness wanderers? And that's what they're celebrating here in this particular festival that today's story takes place in. There's two particular things that Jewish people celebrate during the Feast of the Booths. The first one uh, is from uh, Exodus 13:21 to 22. And there's this story that they were disoriented and they didn't know where to go. And God led them with a cloud in the sky by the day 
and a pillar of fire in their camp at night. And there were a lot of things that that accomplished, but it was a reminder that God was with them. Even though they were wandering in the desert, God's presence was with them. Jewish people also celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles to remember the story of Exodus 17, 1 to 7, where they were thirsty and they had nothing to drink. And so God directed Moses to provide water for them to drink even in the desert. So the first thing that we have to know is we're trying to figure out what uh, Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm the light of the world, is that this story occurs, this teaching occurs right at the end of this festival of the booths of the tabernacles or Sukkot as it's called in Hebrew. That's the first detail. The second one is really cool. The second one will show you what a brilliant writer John is who wrote this gospel. Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world. And in John 8, 12, it links this quote to a story that happened just before it said, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some of the translations say, and then. So it's clearly linked to this famous story in John 8, 1 to 11, where a woman is caught in adultery. She's brought up in front of a crowd, uh, and the penalty in the Old Testament for adultery was death. And so the crowd is so self-righteous that they're actually enacting what they believe is their duty to execute this woman. Jesus brilliantly intervenes. And, uh, well, let me just read the story. It's going to tie in so beautifully to what Jesus is, is teaching us. They went home. Jesus went uh, to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. They said to Jesus, "Uh, Teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And of course, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, and when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote something on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, and Jesus straightened up and asked her, A woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is the teaching that Jesus is giving us, linked to this somewhat familiar story of this woman who was being condemned by the crowd, only for Jesus to set her on her way. So the author John is giving us an illustration, a beautiful illustration, of how Jesus is the light of the world And he's doing it in two ways. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, sin is repeatedly referred to as darkness. Repentance and walking with God is repeatedly referred to as light. So here you have a story of a woman who, because of Jesus' tender intervention, well, he's tender to her, but he's courageous to the crowd, and she has been turned from darkness to light. Did you catch that? She's left a world of sin. She's now forgiven. And we can assume following Jesus. And so the author John has showed us a picture, an illustration of how Jesus turns somebody from dark to light. Right before he says, I am the light of the world. 
I'm speculating here a little bit, but what we know about this festival and people that are sleeping in these tents that they've built, and it's also kind of the celebration of the harvest, and so there's eating and there's drinking and there's celebration, and so probably the most plausible and rational explanation for what's happening here is this woman got caught up celebrating with somebody and they were in the tent together and there's really flimsy walls and the sun came up in the morning and now their, their guilt and their sin was exposed. Right? That's probably what's happened. That's how the, the people who are trying to catch Jesus in the trap have figured out what's going on. And so again, you have this second layer of something that's happening as the darkness turns to light. John is such a good storyteller. Well, the third detail that I think we need to refresh our memories on as we figure out what Jesus is teaching us here, it comes from that particular phrase that we've been talking about each week where Jesus says, I am. And remember back in Exodus 3.13, I'll just read it again. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. If they ask me what is his name, what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In other words, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the original audience would have very clearly understood that he was saying, I am God. He's saying to these Jewish people, I'm the God of what you would think of as the Old Testament. In all of your stories, the God who goes by the name I am, that's, that's who I am. And so that's kind of why this story is followed with uh, the religious leaders so, so angry at Jesus because he just claimed that he was God. I'm sure we've got a lot of people here today that are just kind of seeking Jesus, seeking Christianity, investigating the Bible. If that fits the qualification of where you're at right now, we're so glad that you're here with us. But I just want to take this moment to point out that Jesus did not consider his teachings to be just something else to be on your shelf with a bunch of other books that could offer interesting things to think about. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, Jesus isn't saying, I'm just another source of enlightenment. You might think of him that way, but that's not how Jesus thought of himself. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is telling a Jewish crowd, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am everything you know about God in your presence right here, right now. And we have to understand that that's how the original crowd would have interpreted that very specific phrasing of I am, because back in Exodus 3.14, God says that's his name. His name is I am. And the final thing that I want to point out is just kind of contextual details that help us kind of hear from what God is telling us through this story is that this just makes me excited, okay? Because my whole life I've read through the Bible and I always just come to these little details and I say to myself, and I don't want to get struck by lightning, but you've probably thought this too, God, why is that detail in there? It's so pointless. It's just making my Bible reading take longer. Why, why is that pointless detail in there? Well, listen to this beautiful example of how there's just no random details in the Bible. This is our fourth contextual clue uh, for today's story. Here in John 8.20, it tells us what seems like just a meaningless detail, and it says, Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. What's the deal with that? Do we need to know the exact place that he was standing? He was standing, according to John, in the treasury in the temple. Now, archaeologists have uncovered, I mean, you can still go to uh, recreations of the temple today, uh, and the treasury is in something called the women's court. Okay, that's a little bit misleading because uh, uh, women could sit there and men could walk through it. 
It sounds like it's like maybe exclusive, but it's actually one of the most inclusive parts of the tabernacle or the temple because it's the place where women and men could, could be together. Uh, and that's not super important for this. Uh, what's super important about this detail is that during this festival, during this particular holiday that everybody was celebrating, this particular court of the temple was filled with candle stands and candles. Okay? The whole thing was just filled up with hundreds, maybe thousands of candle stands with candles. And the reason why was because they were celebrating that story uh, back in uh, Exodus 13.21, where it tells us that during that time of the wilderness wandering, the temple was filled with God's presence like a beautiful light every single night. And so now, during these festivals, during these feasts, during this one particular week, they filled this one courtyard of the temple with thousands of candles. It tells us right at the, story, uh, at the beginning of the story there in uh, John 8, 1, that it was the morning. So the candles would have been extinguished. Now let's start to put all this together. Jesus is standing in front of these unlit candles that help those people remember the time when God's presence was visible and with them through the, for the form of a great light. They remember that through lighting these candles. But right now the candles are extinguished. And Jesus, according to John, is standing right in front of those thousands of unlit candles. He's saying, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I am the presence of God. I am the light that symbolizes God's presence. And I'm with you right now. And now let's start to wrap up by putting together what it is uh, that John is probably wanting us to take away from this declaration when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The first one is this, and I'll just combine two things from the, the outline. Jesus is teaching the audience, and by extension, he's teaching us today, that he is the provision in the presence of God. He's telling the audience that all these good things that you're celebrating that God did in the past, the water in the desert, the light at night, the cloud by day, Jesus is saying, I am God's provision for you. And of course, he's also saying that I am God's presence with you. These festivals that we're talking about here are kind of this remembrance of all the good things that God had done for the Jewish people. And Jesus is kind of reinterpreting it by saying, definitely celebrate all the good things that God has done, the provision that he's given you in your past, the times that you've experienced his presence. This is kind of the game changer. Jesus is also saying, but moving forward, recognize that I am the primary revelation of God's provision and God's presence. And it talks about this in other places uh, throughout the New Testament, how Jesus has kind of reinterpreted some of this stuff. One beautiful verse that talks about that is in Hebrews 1.3, when it says this, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory in the exact represent representation of his being. So radiance, it's using that light imagery to reinforce what Jesus is saying. He's the provision in the presence of God. So let's talk about how we could apply this or how we could kind of make this relevant in our modern lives. In this festival that's being celebrated, these people are remembering what God has done in their past. They're showing gratitude to God through the celebration of this particular festival. The application for us is we also are supposed to connect with all the things that God has done in our past. Just like some people go camping to connect with nature, Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate revelation of God's provision and God's presence. And just like the Jewish people connected with that through these festivals, I think Jesus is telling us that we are called to celebrate 
what he's done in our lives. Sometimes it feels like the pastor is telling you all the things that you've done wrong. I just want to tell you guys that you've done this right. Because if you've shown up this afternoon to worship Jesus, you are celebrating God's provision and God's presence in your life. Because Jesus is telling us here that these things occur through Jesus. I'm so glad that you guys joined us this afternoon. I hope that the worship blessed you like it blessed me. I was even talking to somebody uh, as we walked in this afternoon and we basically said, you know, our worship team could get on a plane and fly down to Nashville and cut a record because they're just so gifted musically. It's just so beautiful. So you don't even need to be good at singing if you come to Big Sky Christian Fellowship because our worship team is so good at worship. The application point is this, guys. You need to carve out time every week for you and your family to just celebrate and be grateful for the provision and the presence of God in your life. And that comes primarily through Jesus Christ. If you don't have anything going on on Sunday afternoons, we'd love to have you come here and worship with us and celebrate God's presence and provision in your life. Just like the people in this story are celebrating this festival of God's light in the temple at nighttime, we celebrate the light of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what Jesus is telling us when he says he is the presence and the provision of God. And here's the second thing that I want to wrap up with uh, before we uh, uh, kind of conclude our service. So the two P's that we talked about so far, just to help you remember, Jesus is the provision of God. Uh, Jesus is the presence of God. This is not a concept that would have been familiar to the original audience, but you guys have all been in science class, and you know about photosynthesis, right? It's our third P word. What is photosynthesis? It is the process where light gives life. Photosynthesis is the process where a plant receives sunlight and then a bunch of science stuff occurs and then the plant grows because of that light. Have you guys noticed the beautiful photosynthesis, the beautiful spiritual photosynthesis that happens to the woman in this story? She is making poor choices. She's being taken advantage of. And then she experiences the light of Jesus Christ and she's transformed and she has growth. Beautiful spiritual photosynthesis. Jesus' encounter with this woman caught in sin demonstrates that the moral and the spiritual brightness of Jesus Christ, it eradicates sin and darkness in our life and it fuels growth. Okay? So when we hear people teach about Jesus, when we sing about Jesus, when we read our Bibles and we understand who Jesus was and what it is that he came to do and what he accomplished. That's photosynthesis, right? As we experience the light of Jesus Christ, we experience spiritual growth as a result. Remember how I told you that John is just such a brilliant writer and he layers things into the story that you might not pick up on until your fifth or sixth time that you read it or hear it taught? This woman is experiencing this kind of accusations by the crowd and she's saved by Jesus but she's saved by the mediation of Jesus. And Jesus saves this woman in two beautiful ways, okay? The first one is through his teaching, right? The crowd is like, the Old Testament tells us that we have to kill this woman because she's done something so sinful. And then Jesus teaches, right? He says, well, are any of you faultless? Are any of you sinless? How about the person here that's never sinned picks up the first stone to kill this woman, right? And they're all like, well... None of us are sinless, so none of us can cast the first stone. So the teaching of Jesus provides this kind of intercessory, this mediation that gets in between the hostility of this crowd, blocks it, and kind of provides this healing for this woman. 
I've been thinking about this. Sometimes I think of myself as like a Bible detective. Have you guys ever wondered what Jesus wrote in the sand? It says Jesus bent down and wrote something in the sand, and it was something that he wrote that caused the people in the crowd to walk away. I'm 99% sure I know what he wrote in the sand. Want to know what it is? There's a verse in the Old Testament. It's the only verse in the Old Testament that combines this idea of the water that gives life with this light that gives life. And remember, this particular holiday is a celebration of the two things that Jesus, that God did in the Old Testament. He gave the water in the desert and he gave them the presence of the light at nighttime. And listen to what it says in Jeremiah 17, 13. And keep in mind, earlier in John 7, before this particular story, Jesus had told the crowd, anyone who believes in me will have streams of living water. So he's already been talking about these ideas of life and water. This is total speculation, but I think Jesus bent down and wrote Jeremiah 17, 13 in the dust. And it says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. One verse in the Old Testament that ties all these ideas together. It's saying those who don't have the living water in them will be written in the dust, just like Jesus is doing. Regardless of if that is the specific verse that he wrote or not, if the Bible really wanted us to know it, it probably would have told us. But Jesus has also mediated for this woman in another beautiful way as well. And I think I pointed this out a couple months ago, but the crowd is, uh, the crowd is all looking at this woman who's been caught in a low moment, caught in self-defeating and sinful behavior. They're ready to accuse her. They're ready to condemn her. What does Jesus do? He bends down and he writes something in the dust. And what did all of your eyes just do? They came off the object of your scorn, right? And they looked at the mediator. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. That's a beautiful picture of what the New Testament tells us that Jesus has done for each one of us. We are sinful. We are destructive. We are self-centered. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life, died on the cross, taken our place in judgment before a holy God, taken the scorn of sin, taken the judgment of God off of us so that we can be adopted into God's family, so that we can experience new spiritual life, so that we can walk in the light of the world. So beautiful how John hides all these little gems inside this simple teaching by Jesus. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and wrap up our service with another song or two. And as they do, I'd like to uh, read one final verse from uh, 2 Corinthians 4.6. It's just a beautiful summary of what uh, the New Testament wants us to understand about Jesus, the light of the world. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, which is displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That means that he's God's provision for us. That means that he's God's presence with us. It means that he's the source of photosynthesis. It's a fancy way of saying that our spiritual growth comes from our exposure to the light of the teaching and the work of Jesus Christ. I hope this just has you intrigued. I hope this has you smiling underneath your mask. I hope as the sunlight is coming through here with this beautiful backdrop, you're just kind of taking a deep breath and saying, 
Daylight savings time is awful, but light is so good. I want more light in my life. And that's what Jesus Christ was getting at when he said he is the light of the world. Let's think about that as we wrap up with the final song or two.